0: Good morning, take your Bibles and turn to, tap to, however you do, to 1 Samuel chapter 5. We do have uh, Bibles available to you. If you don't have uh, one, there's uh, some available um, in the uh, pews or out on the table, so keep that in mind, Uh, and there should be some handouts coming out to you as well. So, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, this is going to be in the Old Testament. So, it's going to be uh, on the latter side, the beginning part of the Bible. Um, And uh, yeah. All right. Well, um, let me go ahead and read for us. 1st Samuel chapter 5 there's only 12 verses this morning um so which is uh, actually a pretty short chapter for 1st Samuel 1st Samuel chapter 5 verse 1 when the Philistines captured the ark of God they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon And set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon, in both his hands, were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon. In Ashdod, to this day, verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and his territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. They brought the ark of of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was heavy there verse 12 the men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven let's pray to you god our father we exalt you as a perfect provident holy god You deserve our worship as creator. You deserve our worship as a perfect being in every form imaginable to us. You you, uh, deserve our praise and attention for your brilliance, your creativity, and your perfection and character. Father, thank you that you are a provident, God who is in full control. And Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending to us the ark of the God of Israel in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for using your son, Jesus Christ, to draw us near. Thank you that he is the temple of the holy God who has brought you, Father, to us. And he has ended the wall of separation of our sin in his death. And Father, thank you that you have raised him to newness of life. And then, Father, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. He has fully, in the Spirit, we understand all of God. Or all that you've revealed of God thank you for the gift of the Spirit. We would not know a thing about you if it weren't for the incredible, incredible gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you for him. Thank you for the gift of Scripture. Father, thank you that we can read together these words just incredibly pinned. Some over thousands of years ago, and they're ours today because of this work of the Spirit. Thank you. But Father, far more than that, thank you that our eyes have been opened to see, to let go of our false gods. Because of the work of the Spirit, our eyes have been opened to turn to Jesus Christ and to him alone for help. I pray that you, Father, that your son Jesus, that the spirit, he would, would be exalted as we look at this text together this morning. And Father, you work in our hearts, we pray. Amen. So my, uh, my mother grew up in, in Buffalo, New York. Um, as such, she uh, had the burden of being a Bills fan her entire life. Um, she passed that burden on to me, etched into the fi- fiber of my being are four scars of four consecutive Super Bowl appearances, ending in four losses. And these wounds were inflicted on me at the tender ages of 12, 13, 14, and 15. And I would tell you that it was my tender age at the time that made these blows um, so brutal um, but my mother, who was and is still more senior than me, was not, was less left nonetheless disfigured than I by this. To be a Bills fan is just to know disappointment. Um, <laughs> I can remember when I one of the first times Pastor Scott and I were together, we were talking about football and the Bills came up, and and now I realize this is a typical way that Scott would put something. Um, he said something like this. Man, like, how is it even possible to go to the Super Bowl four times in a row and then lose four times in a row? I mean, isn't that something? Um, I, uh, yes, sir, it is Scott, and I will tell my therapist you said hello. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it is. But amid the disappointment, there were some real moments of hope, and none compares to January the 3rd of 1993 also known to me as the beginning of the third scar it was the AFC West uh uh, the AFC uh, wild card game my family and I we had just gotten back in the car um uh, on our way back towards Winston-Salem we had to drive ahead of us and it was halftime and we turned on the radio kids I'll explain later what that is and um and uh, we discovered that the bills were down at halftime to the Houston Oilers. I'll also explain who they were. Um, twenty eight to three. Um, and that actually wasn't that shocking because the week prior, the bills had lost to Houston, like twenty seven to three. And in that game, their star quarterback Jim Kelly had gone down. Um so we knew that the backup quarterback was in instead. And so, as the third quarter began, things only turned worse for their Bills. Their backup quarterback, um, Frank Reich, uh, he threw an interception at the beginning of the third quarter, and now the Bills were down 35 to three. I think it was at this moment that the Houston coaches, if I have this right, they started calling uh, hotels for the next city to go ahead and book um, for the next city. Happy to say they had canceled us, um, but uh, they—they just—it's a foregone conclusion at that point. It was also at that point, if I remember right, that my mother began telling my father, "Turn it off. We know. Turn it off." Um, luckily, he did not do that. Um, as luck would have it, uh, uh, things began to turn around very quickly. Uh, Their backup quarterback uh, began to score some touchdowns, and and within like seven minutes, they were only down by four points, and they went on to win the game and still stands as the most remarkable comeback in NFL history. And in fact, a little bit more trivia for you, um, because I'm about out after this, but Frank Reich Uh, That quarterback became the first quarterback, I think, for the Carolina Panthers and threw the first touchdown to an ex-Bills. And now, if I have this right, is now the coach of the Carolina Panthers, uh, Frank Reich, who also is a very strong believer and has an MDiv from RTS there in Charlotte. So there you go. Anyway, that was not part of it. So anyway. We, we like stories like this though. Why do we like stories like this? Because part of the human spirit is the desire for a good comeback story, right? When all seems lost, all hope is gone, nothing left for despair and then despair turns to hope. So one of the great things about the Bible um, and just in terms of just literature is that you get all sorts of these stories But it's not make-believe. It would make for really good make-believe if it were make-believe. But it's not make-believe. It's all true. 1 Samuel 5 represents such a story. But, But more than that, this is what I am praying for. I am praying that we will see that it is a type of story. It fits a pattern of these stories in scripture. And this pattern of these comeback stories culminates in the gospel story. So I want to go further and say, I don't believe that the gospel is compelling as a story because it is a story of hope amidst despair. I actually want to argue that we as humans find stories, comeback stories, where hope comes out of despair We find them compelling precisely because they are pictures of the gospel, precisely because we're made in the image of God. So let's get some background together. As we come to 1 Samuel 5, you'll remember the setting of 1 Samuel 4. In 1 Samuel 4, Israel was routed, just beaten bad by the Philistines. 4,000 men were slaughtered in the first uh, battle. And then you remember they went and got the ark, um, and uh, and then they come back. And what happens? Thirty thousand more die in the second one. But uh, as as much as it is as, as a, a major loss as that is, First Samuel four is so careful that we do not think that that's the most significant loss of the day, as as we see. Remember that from Shiloh, they bring up the ark, they bring it to Ebenezer. And as we said, in the second battle, the ark is actually taken by the Philistines. So they didn't just lose 30,000 men in the second battle, they lost the ark of the covenant. They captured it. And so as 1 Samuel closes, Eli hears the news, you remember this, of his sons Hophni and Phinehas dead, And yet that was not the news that brought his death right there that caused him to die from hearing it. It was instead the news of what? In 1 Samuel 4, so careful, make sure we see this. It was when he found out the ark had been taken. Further, when the pregnant wife of one of the slain sons of Eli discovered that her husband was dead and that the ark was taken, it was the latter news. It was the news about the ark that sent her Into despair. She died there on the spot, but not before giving birth to a child who she insisted be named Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And thus, chapter four ends. The ark is missing, and Israel feels the weight of heavy, heavy despair. And that is where. We land in first chapter, first Samuel chapter five. So let's look here, verse one. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer. Remember that was the site of the battle to Ashdod. So chapter four closes in the setting of Israel. Israel despondent over the loss of the Ark. To show us that the focal point of all of this is the Ark of God, chapter 5 opens to a completely different scene, focused not in Israel, but now focused at the current location of the Ark. The setting is the region of Philistia. I'll put that on a map for you. Today, we typically refer to this area of Philistia as the Gaza Strip. So when you're here in Gaza Strip, think Philistines. Uh, the Philistines had five major uh, cities, um, and as, thorough, as a thoroughly pagan nation, they worshiped multiple, I mean, a plethora of gods, but Dagon was, seemed to be one of the most popular ones. Like all pagan gods, he was revered, not because he was worthy of worship, but because of what they thought he could provide. For Dagon, it seems to be something like fish and, and grain. Um, fish from the sea and grain from the ground. So that, that is our setting. Verse two, then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Okay, so the Philistines do the only thing they know to do. They treated the Ark of God like it is one of their gods. So on the one hand, please see, the Bible seems to show us that they are showing respect. For example, they didn't try to harm the Ark of God. They didn't try to destroy it. And this, what what we will begin to see is, is the mercy of God. And part of the reason for the mercy of God is the way that they seem to treat it. They treated it with respect. But on the other hand, if you've read Exodus, especially Exodus 25 and parts of Numbers, take, say, Numbers 4, and you really realize how careful it lays out the handling of the ark, then you recognize that it says only a certain group of people can carry it in only a certain way. They've got to carry it with these poles it's supposed to be carried with poles it's supposed to be treated with the most uh, utmost care and it's supposed to be handled only by a very few grou- uh, a very small group of people so here's the key on one hand they were showing respect the most respect that they knew how to show and on the other hand they were treating the ark with massive disrespect merely because of who they were trying to even handle it. So make note of this as you read your Bible. There's no amount of ritual or care that can prepare people, fallen man, to be near God. There is no amount of ritual or care that can p- prepare fallen men to be near God. God. The Philistines likely thought they were treating God with, res- or treating the ark of God with care and respect. And yet, all the while, they are profoundly dishonoring the living God. God would have been just to drop them right there, right then on the spot. And yet, this happens all the same in our ever increasing secular culture that thinks is playing niceties, thinks that it's paying respect to God by even giving him a nod here or there. All the while, God is showing extreme continued mercy for their disrespect and for their failure to show him all the honor that he deserves. So our posture as we read the Philistine, Philistines Handling the ark is not supposed to be fear and trepidation about the welfare of the poor ark. I don't think that's it at all. And I don't think that's how it's written here. I think instead the posture is fear and trepidation for the welfare of the Philistines. Let it be crystal clear. The ark is in no more danger in the sinful hands of the Philistines than it was in the reckless hands of the Israelites but the Philistines are in grave danger given their proximity to the ark, given their proximity to the one true God. I really can't overstate this point. I can't overstate it for this text, and I can't overstate it for understanding First Samuel. This book takes a very high view of God In fact, I don't think you can make sense of most of what's going on in 1 Samuel if you don't understand the high authoritative view of God and his holiness that it takes. It takes God to be massive. It takes God to be holy. And it takes God to be downright dangerous to sinners. Over and over, we will see it. So with all that in mind, hopefully a a perspective in mind, let's actually reread that together. Verse 2. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So now as you hear this verse, you don't need verse three to be nervous for the Philistines or for, or to feel sorry for Dagon. Like, whoa, I, I think I would rather walk a tightrope over a canyon on electrical wire in the midst of a th- thunderstorm to, to be, than to be poor Dagon left alone with that ark. I, I think I would rather lay down for the night in a nuclear test facility than to be falling asleep as a philistine in that camp with the ark of god there that's the weight that we're supposed to feel before we ever get to verse three and then verse three and the and and five they just land verse three and when the people of ashdod rose early the next morning read here mercy of god nobody Nobody should have rose. Nobody should get up from that night's sleep. But God was merciful. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. When they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the chunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who entered the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Well, poor Dagon. But we saw this coming. The writing the writing here is unbelievable. Just forecast this. Verse 2 is just waiting for this to happen. The Philistines arose the next morning completely unaware of the danger that they are in, unaware of the mercy that God had shown them the night before. They walk into the house of Dagon and poor Dagon, well, he didn't fare so well. He's been knocked down so that he's literally lying, prostrate, before the Ark of God. And then, this writing is so good. They take Dagon and they put him back in his place. How do you know you are worshiping a false god when you have to pick him up and put him back? The one true God can no more be handled by us as a creature than you or I could jumpstart the sun. But how often do we, worshipers of the one true God, try to prop up our false gods? Let our money situation change in the slightest, and we grasp our Dagon, and we try to set him back in order. Let our sense of safety or our sense of normalcy, it all look questionable. And what do we do? We run and try to put Dagon's pieces back together. Let our sense of power or competence, or authority, a peer question. And what are we doing? We're running around trying to glue Dagon back together. If your God can be handled by your efforts, your God is a false God. The one true God needs no handling or help, period. As if that's not enough, the same thing happens the next day. I absolutely love how they, the ESV did a great job of this because they, they translate so that you feel like you just read the same verse again, right? Wait, didn't we just read that? Yeah, that's the point. So it, it gets better though. So verse four says they find Dagon again, bowing before the ark. But this time, this time, the poor guy is headless and armless. But wait, wait, this is one of my favorite parts. Just so, we, just so we don't conclude that his head fell off or that his arms just fell off, God goes the extra measure of lining them all up in a line so that we know somebody did this. Everyone knows that no human touched them. So they've now walked in two days in a row. Now his head... His head and his arms are lined up. And I mean, it's as if the text is playing with you. It says there, only his torso is there. Like, picture that. And here is the craziest response. Their response is, from now on, when they go into the house of Dagon, they treat that line, the threshold, where his head and his his arms are lined up, They treat that with respect and nobody steps on that anymore. Now, friends, if you had to just glue the head and arms back on your God, don't you think the wind has left those sails? I mean, surely the logical response is Dagon has no power. The emperor has no clothes. But no, astonishingly, that isn't the story. This, the story we expected is this is how we realize that Dagon was contrived. But instead, it's just another chapter in the book of Dagon worship. This is now how they explain in the book of Dagon worship, and here's why we don't step on that line. Let us warn our souls. Let our souls be warned how foolish we can be and how. Quickly, we will build our false gods and on our own, we don't need to be convinced that our false gods are powerful so long as they are present and manageable. That's what we want out of a false god. We don't expect their power. We just want to make sure that we can manage them. All right. Next, let's look at this. Be near and be humbled, verse six. So one thing about this, uh, re- recognize that verse six is a summary statement for the whole rest of the chapter. It's kind of it's really, really helpful how they've done it. Actually, verse six and twelve are sandwiched. They 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 uh, you have a book in in six and twelve, they just summarize both of them. It's really helpful. Verse six: the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Uh, you see how Lord is all capitalized? That's Yahweh. So this is Yahweh. He's heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified, and he afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and his territory. Okay, so we got to discuss this word, tumor. That's odd. Um, it's really challenging to figure out what in the world that this Hebrew word, remember the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. So what in the world does this mean? Um, so I I looked at, so we have two earlier translations before English, way before English, scripture out uh, outdates English by a long mile, right? So before there's ever the English language, we had scripture. Um, so before, uh, one of the first translations we get is when the world is kind of turning towards the Greek language. So we get that Um, uh, that translation, and this is, you know, probably 300 years before Jesus we get, it's called the Septuagint, seven books, they call it Septuagint. And it's the translation from the Greek to, I mean, from the Hebrew to the Greek. So I looked at it um, to see how they translate it from the Hebrew to Greek. And then we have another translation that's about 400 years after Jesus, where we translate a guy by the name of Jerome. He translated when everybody was no longer speaking Greek, but everybody was speaking Latin. He translated it from the Hebrew to the Latin. So I was curious what these guys, what did they use for tumor? Because it's really hard because we use tumor very differently. What were they doing? Well, I'm not gonna give you all the ins and outs of that. You can thank me later for not. But um, all that said, here's how Jerome translated this. And this is gonna, I think I just found this really helpful. This is Jerome. This is just Jerome. Don't, Don't blame me. He translated verse six, the end part, and God smote the men in the secret parts of their buttocks. Straight up Jerome. So um, we have a modern day term for being smoked in the secret secret parts of your posterior. Um, We call that hemorrhoids. Yep. So if you change the word tumor to hemorrhoids, In the ESV, verse 6, to me at least, makes a lot more sense. Let's read. The hand of Yahweh was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with hemorrhoids. It's not hard at all to understand why Ashdod was terrified. (laughs) You're talking about getting their attention. God got their attention. Chops their god in half, leaves them lying around, and then strikes everybody. I love it. The men in particular with hemorrhoids. So keep all that in mind. And now think that through as we read 17 through 12. I mean, 7 through 12. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. I'm guessing Gath didn't show up for the meeting. So so they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they, they had brought it around, the hand of the of the Lord was against the city causing a great panic. I bet so. He afflicted the men of the city, both young and old. good gracious, so that the tumors broke out on them. Everybody's got hemorrhoids. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. Now this is great. But as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people cried out, they have brought the Ark of God of Israel to kill us and all our people. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that they may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic through the whole city. The hand of God was heavy, very heavy upon them there. The men who did not die were struck with hemorrhoids and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Wow. Wow. So the stricken, smitten men of Ashdod, they call a meeting. Now, I don't know anything about how many showed up. I don't know anything about how big the facility was. But given the circumstances, it was standing room only. The, the, The conclusion was, we cannot handle this ark. Send this thing away. So they send it. They send it to poor Gath. The same thing happened in Gath. Another standing room only meeting happens. And they... They decide to send it to Ekron. And so Ekron, the folks there, they're just not going to play this game. They hear that this thing's on its way. It barely lands there and they're in a panic. They want this thing gone. And we say, yeah, rightly so. And so here, see how quickly the text has changed. We in chapter four in utter despair The ark is lost. And chapter five ends with the ark nappers crying and begging, Can we please return this thing? This is the difference between the story of this comeback and the Bills story. As we listen to the Bills game, It was angst ridden, and we were unsure the entire time if this thing's even gonna work out. On the other hand, the Ark versus the Philistines was never even a contest. Not once was it ever, was there ever any angst. And how much, I ask you, if you were to ask the Israelites later on, how much did you guys do to get the ark returned? How much work did you put in to to get a return label stamped on the ark and get it sent back? Nothing, not a thing. They had no idea what it was causing to their uh, friends in the Southwest. I want us to stare at two massive observations together. I want you to feel their weight first. Humans will make, keep, and and cherish false gods until God in his mercy utterly destroys them. Better, I shouldn't use humans. We, I, will make, keep, and cherish false gods until God in his mercy just utterly destroys them. Second, it is a dangerous thing to be near the holy God. It is a dangerous thing to be near the holy God. And these points are so tightly connected. You and I were made to be near God. We are made to worship God. And until that void is filled, we will create fake gods to try to fill that void. We cannot, you cannot keep from doing it. But as sinners, it's incredibly hazardous for us to be near God. So the Bible has us stuck. Friend, if you're here and and you see the pickle that we're in, then stay with us because the Bible has an incredible solution. So recall how we got here. From the opening of 1 Samuel, from the very opening, we have seen a nation in rebellion against God. Instead of turning and repenting, they continued in their rebellion. So chapter four was the culmination of how bad things had gotten. God gave them over to judgment and as such, they fell in battle. But furthermore, God allows the Ark of the Covenant to be taken, to fall into the hands of the enemy. The Ark of the Covenant represented for Israel the presence of God with his people. And so as the Ark left, so the picture is, so also the presence of God leaves. So God is preparing the people. In 1 Samuel 4 and 5, he's preparing his people for a few critical events that will happen in the future. So around 500 years, So he's preparing them for one stop is 500 years from them. 500 years from them, God's people will find themselves in a very similar situation. Again, they will reject God. Again, they'll hear his warnings. Again, they'll ignore his warnings. And again, God will warn and warn of judgment with no repentance to come again, God will use a foreign army. This time, it won't be the Philistines. It will be the Babylonians. And again, they will bring judgment. But instead of losing just the Ark of the Covenant, they're going to lose the entire temple. The temple was the most visible witness that God was near his people that the world has seen outside of Jesus Christ. And the Ark of the Covenant resided at the heart of Of the temple. So it's in the raid of the Babylonians that the temple is sacked. And it's actually in the raid of the Babylonians 500 years later that the Ark of the Covenant disappears from the historical record from then on. So the feeling of helplessness, the feeling of despair of 1 Samuel 4, it was a foreshadowing of despair yet to be experienced that would be experienced when the temple was sacked by the Babylonians and the people were exiled off of their land that 500 years later. But if 1 Samuel 4 is a foreshadowing of despair, 1 Samuel 5 is a foreshadowing of hope. Like God overcame the enemies of the people in 1 Samuel 4, the Israelites could be sure that God would overcome the Babylonians. The enemies of God may be stronger than the people of God, but they're never a match for God. Sure enough, some 70 years later, after the people are taken captive, 70 years later, after the temple has been destroyed, God rescues his people and he brings them home. I have no doubt that 1 Samuel 4 and 5 are foreshadowings of what's gonna happen when the temple falls to the Babylonians. But my goodness, that you might call that lightweight foreshadowing compared to events that happened 1,000 years after 1 Samuel. 500 years after it, we get the temple event. And then another 500 years after that, a 1,000 years from 1 Samuel, we get what happens in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. In the defeat of the Philistines and the Babylonians, the temple and the ark fell. But the temple and the ark, those are what? How are they related? Why did God use the temple and the ark? Because they are both types, they're both symbols of the presence of God. But a thousand years later, in the birth of Jesus Christ, the fullness of God came to dwell in the one man, Jesus Christ. And on the on a hill outside of Jerusalem Jesus faced the ultimate enemy of his people. Jesus faced down sin. The enemies of God, the enemy of God's people, it was not ultimately the Philistines. They were placeholders. It was not ultimately the Babylonians. They are placeholders. The enemy of God's people, the ultimate enemy is sin. Sin is a no-joke adversary. Sin has a lot of weapons. But sin has the ultimate weapon, death. When sin entered the picture, it was loaded with the weapon of death. And on a hill outside of Jerusalem, the God-man Jesus Christ was taken. Like the ark of God was taken by the Philistines. Like the temple was ransacked by the Babylonians, their sinless Jesus was carted off and captured by the enemy of sin, by the enemy of death. And like the Philistines and like the Babylonians, death would fare no better. First Samuel 5 and the Philistines stood as a forewarning. To sin and death, while you may capture God's sacrifice for his people, in so doing, God will destroy you and you will be sending him back. And sure enough, we know that, like God miraculously worked to send back the ark to the Philistines, so also the Father worked to raise his son, Jesus. From the dead, early on a Sunday morning, the ark came home. Jesus was raised from the dead. And as Jesus was raised, our ark was raised, our ark was returned, our temple was rebuilt. Jesus is our access to God, He is how we get near. So 1 Samuel stands as a forewarning of the promise of God to overcome our greatest enemy, the enemy of sin and death. And in this picture, in the story of Jesus being carted off and being raised, we have the answer for the biblical pick- pickle we discussed earlier. Earlier, we said we, that we are made to be near God, and yet it's hazardous for us to be near God it's dangerous for us to be near God because of our sin we have like the Philistines and like the Babylonians we have become the very enemies of God now wait a second Tim now I feel like you're mixing some metaphors which am I are you saying that I'm like the Israelites one of God's people Or now you're saying I'm like the Philistines, one of God's enemies. Yes, you and I are both. That's the incredible story of the gospel. God made his enemies his people. God treated his people, his only son, like his enemy, so that we, his enemies... And enemies of God in our sin might be treated like his people. So what do we get with this? What do we do with this? How do we go from being enemies of God to a child of God? Well, dear friend, you don't do one thing more than the Israelites did to get the ark returned. You let God be God. You can't do a thing anyway. He'll bring his ark back. He can overcome our sin. He can overcome our death. He's already overcome sin and death. In Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord. So what do we do? We trust. We trust that God is able to overcome our sin and our death. We do this over and we do this over and we do this over. He can do it and He did it in the cross and in the raising of Jesus. But as we trust Him, we trust Him alone. We turn our backs on our Dagon's. We call Him what He is. He's powerless. And he's false. And we turn our attention by the spirit of God with the help of God to trust in his word. Let's pray. Father. Again, thank you for your word. We don't deserve anything this marvelous. We don't deserve anything this clear. And just stand amazed that first Samuel was written some a thousand years, even before Jesus. And all the while it's just pointing us ready to look at him. And yet, Father, these words have been with mankind now for well over three thousand years. And so. So many people ignore them. Father, thank you for your kindness in opening up our eyes to see and believe and behold your word. I know I would bow to Dagon and put him back on his shelf day in and day out if it was not for the kindness and the mercy of the Spirit of God to awaken me to see Jesus Christ as my only hope. Father, I pray if there's anyone here. And when they look at their lives, they're honest and say, I'm really serving my own gods. I'm running around trying to keep them in order and trying to juggle them. I haven't surrendered to the one true God and trusted his son Jesus for all that I have. I pray. Today, they will bow the knee and trust Christ. Father, I pray for us. Remind us when our hearts and our efforts want to take control, remind us that you have done it all. At the cross of Calvary, it has all been worked out. You have raised your son, and in him we have life. And then, Father, would you please help us to see our false gods and help us to see them as senseless and as powerless, helpless, and to worship the one true God. We ask for your help in this, Father. Amen.